Have you ever wondered how your sales performance compares against your competitors and peers? The B2B Sales Benchmark Report provides the definitive guide to what success looks like in 2021. See how you compare in terms of win rate, sales cycle, average deal value, relationships, and engagement. You can see the results and get the full report at ebster.com forward slash B2B dash sales dash benchmarks. This is Sales Ops Demystified, the number one most downloaded podcast in sales operations. We invite the brightest minds in sales operations onto the show to deconstruct the why, what, and how behind rep productivity, forecasting, metrics, and all things revenue. This podcast is brought to you by Ebster, the leading customer engagement platform for Salesforce. Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Sales Ops Demystified podcast. We are joined by Randall Fees, who has approximately eight years experience in the Sales Ops game previously or currently at Viral Launch or recently left Viral Launch um, Mm -hmm. where Randall was running the sales operations there. Randall, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, So kick off as ever with understanding how you first got into the field. Yeah. So like most, I didn't really grow up wanting to be in sales ops, right? I've kind of bounced around. Yeah. You know, when I grow up. No, Mm -hmm. so I I kind of bounced around, but I keep coming back to sales ops. Um, Started in sales ops after I finished uh, an MBA at Purdue. And I'm pretty sure I got the interview because um, I had a focus in operations, right? But that's like tech time, logistics, uh, how much inventory you need to order type of operations. But that got me in the door, I guess. And so I started there. I really just like the kind of the you know, jack of all trades type of work that sales ops has to have. And then, you know, and I think that Angie's List had a a nice growth projector, you know, trajectory at the time. So started there as a team of five uh, on a 600 person company over the next few years, bounced around different roles, looking at different uh, sales groups, um, eventually is promoted to manager and then director of sales ops, uh, I think at that time it was like 2,200 people. So over that time, they picked up a few different, um, I call them big, hairy, analytical type questions. And so we decided to start a new team. It was called the Applied Business Intelligence Team. That was basically a few different pieces of the sales ops to try to go attack these larger things like who to call, how much to price, and then launch new products, etc. Anyway, Home Advisor acquired them. Um, 2017, 2018, and basically then a lot of our work went to transitioning into the new way of thinking. And then since then, I've basically been starting different organizations or helped different organizations start new sales teams. So, um, helped Indigo Ag, uh, start and scale a B2B sales team. If you haven't like heard of Indigo Ag, they're doing some crazy things in the ag industry. And then most recently, uh, uh, the Vira launch, 
basically they help Amazon sellers get started and be smarter. And so helps them create a new product and start a B2B sales team there as well. Got it. So would you say your sweet spot is like one or two salespeople scaling up to 50 to 100? I mean, for the past year, I guess it has been. Um, Angie's listed its peak had like 1,200 sales reps. So it was, um, was, it's it's a completely different way of thinking. Got it. Yeah. So having five versus 1,200, I can understand it quite different. Mm -hmm. Um, If we zoom in on the previous, your your most recent experience, so um, the... And at the end, the time when you left, how many uh, salespeople were there and how big was the operations team supporting them? Sure. So let me think. I think we'd scaled back down to probably 300 or 400. And it gets a little a little muddy between who was working for what organization at the time. But mm-hmm. um, and similarly, we, we got more efficient on the sales ops side. I want to say there probably were... 20 people that were actually like sales ops analysts and then another 15 or 20 that were our contract admins. Got it. So we're looking at approximately 35, 40 operational resources supporting the sales reps. Yep. Fantastic. Um, and what was the, the, the sales of tech stack you were running there? At, uh, at Angie's list, it was definitely a sales off or Salesforce. Um, shop everything i mean we started implementing it in 2012 and over the course of the next you know five six years we just continued to bolt new things on there it was actually sales ops that that brought it into the organization back then and then different different departments kind of started realizing if they could just get closer to the sales data they would be better off got it Um, and we're using any other tools apart from salesforce we had a Basically, our, our quoting system was homegrown, but other than that, I mean, everything was built within Salesforce. I mean, we used Gainsight and um, a couple of different like call cadencing tools and dialers, but that was about it. Cool. And that was that same for Viral Launch. Viral Launch, we're actually, um, well, again, like you go from like a thousand people to like three or four and it's a different different story so uh not really satisfied with where you know how it's all working right now reps have to go to a lot of different places but we're basically using intercom to store customer information and then once it gets to the point where it should kind of be like an opportunity kind of in our sales pipeline then we move yeah. it into it's called fresh sales it's part of yeah. the fresh suite. yeah Cool. Okay. Yeah. Nice. No, so you have, and what Intercom does do, it covers like the whole, so from like pre, the when they're on the site, just chatting to mm-hmm. engaging in a product and then also support, right? So you have all your customer data there. And then when the sales rep sees an opportunity, they'll ping that contact into Fresh Sales and start working it from there. Exactly. Yep. Um, if we go back to Angie's list, I think mm-hmm. this is probably the most personal example uh, with data quality. How are you managing, like you said, thousands of reps, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's always an interesting game, right? Because I once heard somebody to say that sales ops is basically like they handle the like fuzzy data that nobody else wants to. Uh, and I always like I think that that is very true because you know finance and accounting people they they get really frustrated when you know these numbers that have all these caveats, right? Um, but I'll say, like, I've always thought it's basically the responsibility of whoever is putting up the numbers to understand 
the numbers that they're putting out, you know, like if you're going to present this number, you better understand all of the assumptions and the caveats within it. And I say that just as kind of a, you know, public service announcement because, you know, sales leaders aren't going to want to learn definitions and a lot of sales reps only, you know, kind of do what they have to. So I've always thought about it, like sales ops has to guide data quality. And I think that the best way to do that is to tie that measurement to something that's easy. So instead of asking a rep to change the opportunity stage to contract sent, have DocuSign move the stage when the contract is actually sent. And I think the more you can set these triggers and kind of lock your data to these these simple definitions, you can actually, you know, work on improving the numbers instead of defining them. Um, and then you know, some data is going to be completely reliant on the on the reps, and so you, you know you're you have to rely on the sales team and the sales leadership. But you know, if sales ops doesn't have the relationship with sales, or a sales leader doesn't really understand the value of good data, then you know that's that, that's where you have to start. You need that. Cool. So two things you have to establish is first a, a related trustful relationship between the ops team and the sales team, and then also mm-hmm. you need the sales leadership to prioritize. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. Um, and we just sort of touched on it there, but getting buy-in from the sales team to say do this new manual process that gives you better data, but may take more of their time. How, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So I think I, I always try to avoid this answer as much as possible, but I have to say, like, it depends, right? And I think that it depends on like the sales culture that you're in, the type of change that you're trying to implement, and if you have any incentives at your disposal or not. So, uh, for instance, at ViraLaunch, uh, small team, everyone acknowledges the need for change in processes. So you, you can just kind of have an offhand conversation with somebody, and you you know you agree that this this is the better way, and it's done. Um, at sales team scale, that is not you know that's not a viable solution. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you're really <clears throat> Excuse me. So we really have to get to a point where you can have um, kind of like different opportunities, ways of implementing and getting that buy-in. So, um, like, yeah, you get that relationship with the sales team. You have an honest conversation about the change that you're trying to put in, why, what it's going to mean to them, and get you have to get their honest feedback as to whether they're actually going to give it a try or not. Because I think that a lot of times you'll just kind of throw something out there and they'll just kind of be like, yeah, just like the last three changes, this one's not going to stick. And, you know, you don't really move the ball forward. Um, and, and to that end, I think it's whenever possible, I try to look for kind of a give-take exchange, right? Like reps understand this. But if you want them to log something new, see if you can take something off their plate in exchange. And, you know, I mean, you, you can keep asking them for it and some reps will continue to do these little things. But... Um, at scale, there's kind of a finite capacity for, you know, this this minutia in their minds. Got it. Um, you must have onboarded a lot of reps at, at, at during Growth Angels List. Um, do you have any best practices or or tips to share on how to like reduce ramp time when onboarding? Mm-hmm. Um, I've always worked with pretty great like sales training teams and I, and I think that they're pretty indispensable right uh, but I will say there's also no substitute for like shadowing current high performers I think that um, if you talk to the best salespeople in any industry they kind of have this 
this uh, perspective on the client base that's really tough to bottle up and get into a PowerPoint. And so, you know, I think you, you just, it can be expensive and sometimes those top performers don't want to do it. But I think that that's, that's how you, you know, scale more predictably because otherwise they'll always go try their own things and have to relearn everything that everybody else has already learned. Um, that said, I think that you have to understand your expected ramp up time and set those expectations early and often. Mm. I totally agree when, especially even, even in episode, the episode, the people, the top performers have this kind of, when they speak about the product, almost like this vibe that you're, mm-hmm. you're right, you have to just like bottle that up and put it into some slides. It's something that you, you have to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally agree. Um, making reps more productive. You did mention something about pinging out contracts and that automatically updating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you have to, you know, look for those those little automations to help. But um, I think whenever you know productivity or, or general sales increases, I try to I try to like reposition it as like, so are you fundamentally looking for efficiency or effectiveness. And I think that sometimes that forces like um, we'll say the C level to actually like make a decision on that. Because I think if you don't, you end up usually with tests within a test. So for example, um, you throw a stat up for a sales leader says, you know, every hundred dials you get, you have a conversation and they're like, well, that's, you know, that's crazy. If we can just improve that number, you know, then, um, we'll hit our sales, you know, we'll hit our quota easy. And, uh, this is true. You know, they're always quick with those little math things, but really what they're asking for is, you know, remove the leads that aren't effective or, or, you know, and then, but don't lose any of the, any of the bookings that you would have got from them. So you're both getting more efficient and effective when you do it, you know, and so from a, from an analysis perspective, you're basically trying to find all of the needles in a haystack from this low probability group. So if you can split that up into two tests, right? So one, you remove the low probability leads and, and, you know, you focus more effort on high value leads, but you know that you're foregoing something over here or you simply just dial more and you reach more of an audience and that's more just the sheer effectiveness. And so then you avoid the test from the test. Anyway, um, it's kind of a rant, I think, but it's one of my, like, because you can get you know, trapped by just looking for sheer growth. Um, anyway, as in terms of productivity, there's a few different like angles you can take, right? Like the simplest way is just to look at your sales process end to end, sit down with the sales sales reps, sales manager, sales leadership, and you know, and just say, all right, you know, where do we think the lowest hanging fruit is here? Is it is it training? Is it productivity? Is it uh, sales collateral, contract terms, bundling? as the trans transition processes, you know, there's all these pieces. Um, On the other hand, I, I think that one of the easiest pieces and one of the more impactful is to kind of take, you know, your LTV findings from whatever method you're using and make sure and push those back into the sales rep team or the the sales team. I think that, you know, it's, it's one of the easiest way to really grow revenue. If you can say, you know, this segment or this lead source or this, this type of decision maker has a higher lifetime value and you, you know, you can show that and you give the reps 
you know, a little bump in commission for closing that type of deal, all of a sudden, you know, the LTV for all of your, you know, your customer base starts to increase and all of a sudden you've got, you know, extra revenue that just comes out of nowhere, um, seemingly. Um, and then lastly, for productivity, I guess, I, you know, I always kind of have a regular check every three, six months to just be on the lookout for like kind of legacy junk in terms of something that was put into place to fix a problem at the time and just, you know, might not be valuable anymore. Uh, you have to be very careful because, you know, you have to understand all of the reasons why it was put in it at that time, but also, um, you know, make sure it's no longer valuable and see what else it's now curing because there's going to be some unintended consequences. But sometimes, you know, those can be very valuable to remove. Got it. Um, if we go back to Andrew's list again, how are you forecasting sales? Were you guys responsible for rolling everything up and then you hand it over to the managers or how did that yeah. work? Yeah. So, um, yeah, over the course of the years, we had quite a few different different forecasting methodologies, right? Um, and it's, it's very different between originations and CSMs and uh, different sales cycle lengths. But, um, well, so for short term, my the, the one that, you know, withstood the bomb test, right? No matter what this method always held out was just, it's called glide path or glide cone forecasting. So basically you just look at, you know, so over the past three months, we typically close, you know, this much over the course. So if we're currently here on the 20th day of the month, that means, you know, we're trending towards 5% below goal or 5% above goal. And what's really nice about that is it is it's bomb proof because no matter what changes you're testing or putting in, you're, you're only, you know, you're managing or you're forecasting based on what's actually closed. So there can be a bunch of weird things early in the process that doesn't really impact the closed amount. Um, if we're talking about forecasting more like AOP or longer term plans, then you've got to, uh, I always advocate pretty hard for, you know, you'll get a top-down plan generally from, you know, like finance or the investors, and then you have to build a bottom up to meet it. And I think that as long as you have both, you kind of have, you know, some level of accountability to make sure that it's realistic and, you know, you get some checks and balances throughout the organization. Got it. Um, throughout the eight years, uh, have there been a KPI metric that you have found uh, incredibly insightful? Um, no. And I, I say that because I think if you focus too much on any one metric, you lose, you know, you, you'll hit that one metric, but it won't mean anything. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I think that you can go too far in terms of measuring everything. We, at one point, we had a monthly report that was over 200 slides long that took, you know, an entire team, um, the better part of a month just to complete. And I don't think that was really helpful. But I think that you've got to kind of, kind of like, you know, triangulate where you're actually at. So you look at, you know, your, you've got your top of funnel, you've got your actual bookings, you've got your client success metrics, and then you kind of have your your overall revenue and, and uh, you know, movement to our goals so that you're not, uh, like, if you're just just bookings, all of a sudden you'll, you know, you might hit that number, but your LTV shrinks, and then, you know, you, you just get uh, trapped at the next meeting anyway, in terms of why aren't you hitting this metric now? 
Got it. So you advocate more of a holistic view, taking into multiple, like prioritizing, say, five metrics, focusing on them, and then having your backup. Cool. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then finally, who in the world of sales operations has, mm-hmm. has inspired you the most? You know, it's it, it's interesting to think back on on some of this because you know, it, sales ops is not something that's, that's taught anywhere. And I I think between organizations, there's you know pretty amazing difference in how how it's structured, what their thought processes are, thought processes are. Um, I learned a lot from my managers and business leads at Angie's List. Um, basically, like, yeah, Mike Rutz, Matt Dooley, Amanda Jack. Um, but I will say a lot of the, like, the best lunches or, the, you know, the, the, the things, places where I learn the most are with, you know, leadership or, or um, you say frontline people in kind of tangential departments. So finance, accounting, cloud ops, these are people, you know, you can just figure out, you know, what they're frustrated with or what ideas they have. Sometimes they have a great perspective on things that is separate from sales when you're so, um, so aligned with them. So that's a really interesting answer. Um, okay, cool. Let me, let me summarize what I thought was, uh, interesting. Um, I love your description of, sales ops being responsible for the fuzzy data that no one else wants to, uh, which I thought was super interesting. Um, something that really resonated with me is once you do, once you focus on data quality, um, you can then look at improving the numbers instead of defining the numbers. And I feel like we're well, in marketing anyway. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time defining, like configuring reports in Salesforce to actually be accurate. And only now can we actually start improving them. Yes. Um, Shadowing current high performance is such a simple thing, but I actually that we never had that answer before for that question. And then doing the LTUV thing, feeding that back in, and then even tweaking commission. I think that's again we've never had that before, and I think that's really insightful. And um, then your final answer about actually learning most from not people in sales ops, but other people in the business that could either have that you could either help or that could have really insightful ideas for you. So, mm-hmm. Randall, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sales Ops Demystified Podcast. If you are listening on a podcast listening application, then please subscribe, rate, and review. And if you have any questions about the show, if you know a guest, or if you have any questions about sales operations, just hit me up at tomhunt at ebster.com. That's tomhunt at ebster.com.